You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. This is the Warrior Priest Podcast, and I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show. This week is the week after Christmas, 2019. Uh, just about, well, the New Year's just around the corner as I'm recording this, a couple days. And so as the year winds down, I thought I would spend it reading from The Warrior Ethos by Stephen Pressfield. I've been in this quite a bit of late. As I said, I think maybe in the last episode, uh, reading Pressfield, specifically The Gates of Fire, and then diving into his whole catalog of of novels, historical fiction after Gates of Fire. uh, I like him quite a lot as an author, as a historian, and... Uh, in particular then as it pertains to why I started the podcast and why I do this, um, he has a way of capturing not only the moment um, for the characters in his books, but also the moment in time, this historical event, the battle, the individual soldier or the warriors as a group, what they're thinking, what they're experiencing emotionally, and what is it that binds them together as a unit. And so today I want to dive into uh, Meditation 14, and this is in part two, the external war. There's three sections in the warrior ethos, and this is part two, the external war, and Meditation 14 on selflessness. Pressfield writes, Plutarch asked, why do the Spartans punish with a fine the warrior who loses his helmet or spear, but punish with death the warrior who loses his shield? Answer, because helmet and spear are carried for the protection of the individual alone. But the shield protects every man in the line. The group comes before the individual. This tenet is central to the warrior ethos. So from the very outset then of this meditation, that the comrade in arms, comrades in arms, the esprit de corps, as it's sometimes called, brotherhood, fellowship, however you want to uh, frame it, At the core of the squad, of the unit, of the platoon, the company, the group, the tribe, whatever it may be, the gang, at the core is not we're all in this for ourselves. It's not a kind of social contract where individualism kind of rides roughshod over the needs of the group, but rather the central tenet of the warrior ethic of this code of conduct is selflessness, that yes, in terms of um, soldiery, the helmet and the spear are for the protection of the individual, but the shield protects every man in the line. The group comes before the individual, which is why the Spartans then punished with a fine the man who lost his helmet or his spear because he only hurt himself, but punished with death the warrior who lost his shield. As the Spartan mother famously said, and it's come down to us through history, come home with your shield or on it. And the reason is that if you run from the battle, if you drop your shield, if you lose your shield, it's not just you that suffers, but rather your brothers, they suffer as well. And I think for myself meditating on this, something that we've talked about and I've talked about on this podcast before, and it's certainly... Uh, a point of of focus for me. I know for myself, I lived for so many years so selfishly, and especially when I was younger and I was stupid and thought I was invincible and invulnerable and bulletproof. I only lived for myself. My relationships, my friendships, girlfriends, anything that I did, I only did for myself. And I did it because it made me feel good or gave me pleasure. And anything that didn't make me feel good or give me pleasure, I just classified as bad or evil or wrong. It was just something to be avoided or someone to be avoided. And that kind of self-serving mentality, it's not unique to any one person. Uh, My children who kind of lack self-awareness to different degrees, depending on their age, what they lack in self-awareness is the awareness that when they walk in the room, for example, and I'm writing or reading or talking with one of their siblings, they just start talking because as children... They, they tend to lack the self-awareness to, to be able to reflect on, oh, well, he's writing or he's talking to someone else or he's doing something. So before I begin to talk at his face or his head or his back, I need to say, hey, excuse me, can I talk to you for a second or whatever it might be. 
But because my children lack that self-awareness and they themselves are the most important person in the room and what they have to say to me is the most important thing that could ever be said, they don't stop to, to ask if they can talk to me. They don't stop to consider what is he doing right now and is what I have to say important? Can it wait? Is it an emergency? How should I interrupt him to get his attention? They just walk in the room and start talking. And the thing is, I can say it about my children, but I know plenty of adults who do the exact same thing. In fact, I'm just as guilty of that, especially after a good training session where I'm all jacked up and, and you know, my testosterone is up and the endorphins are just pumping through my body. I just, I talk a mile a minute because one, I think out loud to begin with. And then two, when I'm all excited and jacked up and I've had a great training session, I just talk and I talk and I talk. And then after I calm down and I cool off, I realize that what I said was entirely about me. And I'll walk into conversations with two or three or four of my teammates and just completely, you know, uh, jack the thread, so to speak. I'll hijack the whole conversation. I don't mean to do it. It's not a malicious thing. I'm not saying, well, I'm more important and therefore let's talk about what I want to talk about. It's just that in that moment when I'm all jacked up and excited and feeling good, and I'm grateful actually, I just lack that that mo you know that that hesitation that causes a person to say hey what are these people talking about and how can i engage in the conversation with them rather than thread jacket and take over the conversation and make it all about me so i think we all do it it's just a matter of are you tired are you excited are you angry are you frustrated whatever it may be the tendency is always to think well what I want to say or what I think or what I need to do is the most important thing. Me as an individual person is the most important person in this conversation, the most important person in this room, and therefore everyone should be paying attention to me. And that is fine once in a while. But all the time, I, I look at myself, for example, and even in the present tense, as much as I work on it, there are just those moments when I dominate a conversation because again, I'm thinking out loud and those who don't know me or those who don't know me well enough to realize that I'm thinking and that they just need to cut me off and I'll stop, will sit there and listen and I monologue like a villain to them. And I can come off as being very selfish, very self-centered, very uh, arrogant and egocentric. And yes, I am. <laughs> but at the same time, it's also a lack of knowledge on the other person's part about how I think. I think out loud and I get caught up in my own thoughts and I got to get them out uh, before I lose them. And as a consequence, like I said, it, the tendency is to only focus on yourself. But in a group, especially when it comes to combat, especially when it comes to competition, the group comes before the individual. And this tenant is central to the warrior ethos. So Pressfield continues, once Alexander was leading his army through a waterless desert. The column was strung out for miles with men and horses suffering terribly from thirst. Suddenly a detachment of scouts came galloping back to the king. They had found a small spring and had managed to fill up a helmet with water. They rushed to Alexander and presented this to him. The army held in place watching. Every man's eye was fixed upon his commander. Alexander thanked his scouts for bringing him this gift. Then, without touching a drop, he lifted the helmet and poured the precious liquid into the sand. At once, a great cheer ascended, rolling like thunder from one end of the column to the other. A man was heard to say, With a king like this to lead us, no force on earth can stand against us. There's another story of Alexander when he was getting ready to march out from Macedonia to commence his assault on the Persian Empire. He called the entire army together, officers and men, for a great festival at a place called Diem on the Magnesian coast. When all the army had assembled, Alexander began giving away everything he owned. To his generals, he gave great country estates, all properties of the crown. He gave timberlands to his colonels, fishing grounds, mining concessions, and hunting preserves to his mid-rank officers. Every sergeant got a farm. Even privates received cottages and pasture lands and cattle. By the climax of this extraordinary evening, his soldiers were begging their king to stop. What? 
One of his friends asked, will you keep for yourself? My hopes, said Alexander. Selfishness produces courage because it binds men together. Oh, I'm sorry. Selflessness produces courage because it binds men together and proves to each individual that he is not alone. Selflessness produces courage because it binds men together and proves to each individual that he is not alone. And that's the point that Pressfield is trying to make, I think. The group comes before the individual. Why? Because the individual alone, even in a group, easily loses his will, loses his nerve, loses his determination. I've talked about that in the second BJJ debrief when I lost my nerve before the competition. I felt alone. I isolated myself before the competition. And as much as I tried to and did interact with other people, it was more along the lines of, well, this is what I'm supposed to do right now. There's other people here and I need to talk to them and hopefully this will distract me from what I'm really worried about, which is defeat, which is losing, which is not being good enough. And yet the whole time I'm talking with my teammates and talking with other people, and catching up, I'm not really paying attention. I'm not focused on them. I'm only thinking about myself. And in the course of those conversations, we, we give each other advice, so to speak. We talk about our own experience and what works for us as far as preparation, getting mentally prepared and so forth. And there's even some encouragement, but yet, at least in jujitsu, for example, it's still an individual pursuit because I still have to walk onto the mat and compete against another person, another man by myself. It's not really a team activity, so to speak. But in the gym, I see this all the time, the group and the group identity, the, the brotherhood that comes from training and from sharing a common struggle with your training partners and the, the reason that you're there, the why that you're in the gym training in the first place. And there is a selflessness that is demanded of the individual in the gym. In fact, I argue that those who are the least a part of the group, the ones who enjoy the least advantage of fellowship, of brotherhood, of esprit de corps, are those who are so focused on themselves as individuals and only, or at least primarily, what they're getting out of this training session or what they're getting out of this sparring session and these rounds. It's pretty easy to figure out who those people are because they don't roll with you. They roll against you. They don't spar with you. They spar against you. They don't concern themselves with whether or not they hurt you until after they've hurt you. And even then, they usually tend not to apologize for injuring you or hurting you. Whereas those who are your teammates, they are the ones who roll with you. They spar with you. When they hurt or injure you, they apologize they take ownership and they're, they hold themselves accountable for what happened, even if it's not their fault. Because that's really what selflessness is. That's what selflessness produces. Courage or encouragement to stay the course, to continue to struggle, to keep showing up over and over again, to train even when you're hurt or when you don't want to. Why? Because that, that, com, that camaraderie, that esprit de corps. That's what binds people together. That's what binds men together, as Pressfield writes, and it proves to the individual that he is not alone. And why do we do anything at all? Why do we seek out companions and spouses and relationships and fellowship and brotherhood and esprit de corps and comrades in arms? Why do we seek out groups of people that share common interests? I think, especially since the Enlightenment, modernity has, well, depending on how you look at it, either suffered or benefited from subjectivism and the emphasis on each individual kind of being a kingdom unto him and herself and self-authority, autonomy, self-rule, a law unto oneself. Autonomos literally means self-law in Greek. And so especially since the Enlightenment, especially in the 20th and now the 21st century, individualism trumps just about everything. That's why nowadays people are talking about my truth and your truth. And truth is a relative term. Uh, morality has become relative. Good and evil are considered relative terms. And the interests of the group, serving the group, 
getting outside of your own vanity or ego as vanity was, was kind of rebranded in the 20th century by modern psychoanalysis. Well, the, the group, the, the congregation, the assembly, they're not as important as the individual. And I see this all the time as a pastor. People come to church because they want to get something out of it for themselves. They come to worship to worship God and get something out of it for themselves. And like I said, at the gym, I see this, that people come in and they're, they're there for themselves. They're coming for themselves. And eventually they either really integrate into the group and become a part of the group and, sh and kind of take on the personality of the gym or they don't. And we see this all the time then. Why go to college? Why get a job? Why get married? Why get divorced? Why go off on an adventure? Why do this or that? If not to make yourself happy, to satisfy yourself, love yourself, forgive yourself. It's all about the individual. And yet there is, I think, a dichotomy here that is important to grasp, which is, as I've said before, I decided after years of, of living in fear, uh, growing up afraid of my father and the abuse, growing up afraid of other adult men in my life who also abused me, uh, in always being the new kid, always moving every three or four years and being afraid of being the new kid, being afraid of being picked on and bullied, being afraid of being not welcomed into the group and having to constantly figure out and be a social chameleon to, to fit in and not be tortured because kids are cruel. We all know that. And especially when kids pick at you and they find your weak spot or your vulnerability, they exploit it and it travels around the class pretty quickly and even around the school. Public shaming in schools is it's just a fact of if you go to school, there's going to be shame. It's because shame-based culture. You go off to college and again, you try and figure out your social groups. You try to figure out your likes and dislikes apart from your peer group in high school and on and on and on it goes. And I went through that and I went through alcoholism and addiction and have, and have constantly lived with that reality that I grew up with it and saw it modeled for me and yet then accepted it and took it on myself and embraced uh, alcoholism in particular. And opiate addiction, my, my drug of choice was opiates, Vicodin, Percocet, downers, so forth and so on. And so all of those things caused me to live in fear, fear of myself, fear of my own thoughts, fear of my feelings, fear that others are going to hurt me, fear of being abused, fear of being exposed as a fraud, fear that I'm not the person that I think I am and I'm afraid to act on those feelings lest I discover that I'm a fraud I'm a coward. Uh, I'm not as smart as I think I am. Whatever, whatever it might be, right? We all, we all struggle with this in our own way. It doesn't matter how old or young we are. And after years of living in fear, I looked at my wife and my children and I decided enough is enough. I can't take care of my wife and children. I can't protect them. I don't know how to defend myself. I definitely don't know how to defend them. And once I got sick and tired of being afraid, that's when I finally said, you know, it's taken me over 20 years to get out of my own way so that I can go into a martial arts gym and kind of, I don't want to say it was a last ditch kind of, um, I hit bottom moment, but I was certainly desperate at 45 and looking for something that could give me clarity and especially humble me and uh, help me understand myself more clearly and help me understand others in a more, uh, with a more sober mindset. And also then push me physically and emotionally and intellectually to be the, the person that I wa always wanted to be, but was afraid, like I said, to kind of chase that goal or chase that dream because what happens if I chase and it turns out that I'm not, I don't have any courage, but I'm actually a coward. And all those things that I thought about myself that I was afraid to reveal to others because I was afraid of what they'd say, what if all those negatives that I saw when I looked in the mirror, when I actually let them out, turns out they actually were negatives and that I really am that person and that I am no good or I'm not worthy of other people's respect or affection or whatever it might be. I'm just not worthy of being in relationships with people who are healthy and, and motivated and encouraging. And so I took that that leap, I walked through that door and then three years later, here I am, three years and change. 
And that's the thing, though, is that what I discovered is that I'm a misfit toy. And even though I didn't fit in with all of these other social groups throughout the years, when I walked into that gym, all of a sudden I met a whole bunch of other people who were just as quirky and idiosyncratic and nerdy and shared many of the exact same interests that I do and liked to have similar conversations to the ones that I like to have and also were addicted to jujitsu and addicted to Muay Thai and then I became addicted to those things. And as I've said before, there's... I've never tried a more powerful drug than jujitsu, that's for sure. And it kills me that I haven't been able to train since Thursday because of the weather. Uh, because I know what jujitsu gives me. I know what it also, I know what happens when, I, when, it, when I'm not around it and it doesn't, it doesn't give to me all of these, these things that come with it, both tangible and intangible. And at the core of that, is this, that it binds me together and proves, it binds me together with other people and we struggle together and we challenge each other together and we improve and we better each other together. And it shows me and I'm there to show them that you're not alone and that you might be quirky and you might be idiosyncratic and you might feel like a misfit toy that doesn't fit in anywhere. You're an outsider always looking in. But here, right now, at least with me, you're not alone because we're together and we're here for basically the same purpose and we have basically the same goal. And so what can I do to help you achieve your goals? What can I do to encourage you and to help motivate and stir you up to keep coming back, keep showing up and keep pushing forward? And then God willing, they do the same for me. So Pressfield continues, the act of open-handedness evokes desire in the recipient to give back. Exactly. The act of open-handedness evokes desire in the recipient to give back. In the church, we talk about holding everything in the dead hands of faith, meaning if you, if you in a, a theological sense, believe that God provides, gives everything that you need for your, this body and life, all the good things you need for this body and life, then the worst thing you can do is grasp your fingers, clutch at the, the thing that God puts in it right now. Because once you make a fist, once you clutch that one thing that is in your hand, now nothing else can be put into your hand. And we tend to clutch at things that we're afraid to lose because we think of them as our possession. This is mine, and if I let go of it, I'll never get another one like it. Or this is mine, and if I let go of it, someone else will come along and take it. And I think, is it Aesop? Yeah, Aesop. One of my favorite fables by Aesop is about a dog who steals a bone off the butcher's block while the butcher's distracted. And then he runs away with this bone and he's so proud of himself at his stealth. And he's so proud of himself at his quickness. And he's so proud of himself that he has this bone. And he's imagining all the way home as he trots home back to his, his doghouse where he's going to chew on this bone and savor this bone all day long. And he's thinking about all these things. And as he crosses over this bridge over this river, out of the corner of his eye, out of his peripheral vision, he sees another dog. And this dog is following him as he crosses this bridge. And he turns to face this dog and this dog is facing him. And he sees that the dog also has a bone in his mouth. And you know where this is going. And the dog, again, jealous of the other dog and also afraid that this dog is going to come and take his bone, barks at the other dog. And when this dog barks at the other dog, the bone falls out of his mouth into the water and he loses it because it turns out that the other dog was a reflection of himself. And because of his selfishness and his me first attitude and how he clutched at this bone and all he could think about was this bone, he couldn't even think clearly that this other dog that was staring back at him, that was following him, it was just his own reflection. And likewise then, when we're so focused in on ourselves as individuals, we tend to clutch at what we have, the victory, the trophy, the medal, the admiration or affirmation, the acknowledgement, the, the praise, the thank you, whatever it might be. We get so focused on that that we don't realize that it's, it's a gift. And so we clutch at those things and then we're not open, we're not open-handed and therefore we can't accept all of the other encouragement that comes to us and we can't be grateful for all of the people that are you know, put into our lives 
to benefit us and us to benefit them because we're so busy clutching at the one thing that we just can't live without that we don't realize, we don't even notice that all of the people around us benefit us. All of the people around us are our teachers. And it doesn't matter what age they are. It doesn't matter where they're coming from. It doesn't matter whether we like them or not. Even the people that we disagree with, the people that we don't personally like, this isn't somebody I'm going to go out and get a burger with. I'm not going to go join a bowling team with this, this man or woman. They can still teach you something about yourself. For example, why do I dislike this person so much? Is it because I find them to be morally corrupt and deprived, depraved and perverse? Or is it that they are like a mirror that shows me myself and that because I recognize in this other person his arrogance? Well, I recognize that because I myself am an arrogant person and I don't like being reminded of my own arrogance because I like to think of myself as a very selfless and altruistic person, a benevolent, charitable person. And here's this arrogant jerk reminding me that I'm kind of not selfless and charitable and that I really do those things for my own self-benefit and to get praise from other people and to be thought highly of by other people. And so when we hold things with that open hand, that dead hand of faith, however you want to look at it, when we're open-handed, we can receive everything in the way of gift, even uh, negatives, even things that are detrimental or not entirely destructive to the point of you know death, but some of the greatest lessons that I've been taught, the most important wisdom that I've received in my life have been through catastrophic decisions that I've made or highly self-destructive choices that have left me scarred, actually, both internally and externally. And yet when people ask me after the fact, was it worth it? My answer is yes, absolutely, because I learned something from this. It taught me something that I had to go that far to learn. And if I could have done it differently, that would have been great. But this is the way that it was taught to me. And here are the reminders or the reminder of what it cost me, what the sacrifice was for me to learn this. And so Alexander's men knew from their king's spectacular gesture of generosity, of giving away everything that was his, except his hope, which no one can take from you. By doing that, it actually encouraged his soldiers and his leaders to follow him and to remain loyal to him because he was more than willing to give up everything he had so that they might benefit because he knew, Alexander knew, by giving them all of this, by showing how little this means to me, and then by declaring that I still have my hope. Now hope will drive this expedition. Hope will drive this campaign. And we can build on that. We can walk a thousand miles on hope. But eventually the promise of wealth, the promise of riches, the promise of material possessions will wear thin and it will fray and it will begin to disintegrate. Because when I'm a thousand miles from home, what do I care that I have a fish pond waiting for me back home when I'm probably not going to make it out of this valley alive? And yet, like I said, those intangibles like hope, like courage, you can't buy them. Uh, they have to be given in a certain sense by the people that are around you. And it has to be, again, shown to you, you're not alone in this situation, especially for leaders. For a leader to not walk behind someone pushing them forward and not to stand above them looking down their noses at them, but for a leader to walk with his soldiers or with his employees or with his friends. It doesn't matter, but the fact that you're walking with them or that you're walking with your arm under their arm to help support them. That when they fall, you're right there beside them to pick them up. When they stumble, you're right there to hold them up and lend them your strength so they can regain their footing. But that all of these material possessions mean nothing if we don't have each other. Because how can I conquer the world if... I don't have your loyalty. How can I count on you to have my back in the fight when there's nothing that I've shown or done for you to encourage you to protect me and defend my back? Because I haven't done it for you. And so they knew that because of his acts of generosity, the spoils of any victory that they won would be shared with them too. And that their young commander would not hoard the bounty himself. Because what does Alexander care for treasures? He is an emperor. He can have anything and anyone that he wants whenever he feels like it. It doesn't matter to him. Those things don't matter because it's the intangibles. 
that at the end of the day, for me anyways, are what make a person wealthy. I know for a fact, I, I have friends who are extremely wealthy in a material sense, who have an enormous amount of money in the bank. And in my lowest moments, I envy that they are so free from care about paying taxes or putting food on the table or the fact that they don't really even have to budget because they have so much money. And they could spend an enormous amount of money. They could drop $80,000 on a car and they'll make that back in a morning the next day. And yet I also know people who are that materially wealthy who are on prescription medications and who are alcoholics and drug addicts and who cheat on their spouse and never show up for their kids. And everything that they do is about making the next dollar. And when I've asked them how much is enough, their answer is always the same. It's never enough. There's never enough. It almost becomes like a game. How much can I make before I check out? And yet some of those folks, a few of those folks in their candid moments have admitted that they envy me and they envy my life and the simplicity of it and the humbleness of it. And they envy the fact that my family seems to genuinely love and enjoy one another and doesn't really, you know, go off into different corners and hide from each other or disappear and kind of interact with each other in the morning or in the evening in the kitchen. And also the envy of me that I don't really need that much, materially speaking. I don't want that much, material speaking, because most, if not a majority of the things that I want in life can't actually be bought. They have to be earned and they have to be gained through hard work. And most of them are gifts that, yes, I earn it through my merit, but they have to then be given to me, awarded to me by those who look at me and say, I see how hard you work. I see how much you try. I see what you're putting in. And I want to give this to you now, or I want to reward you for this, or I want to acknowledge what you're doing so that you know how much I appreciate this or how much we appreciate your contribution. You can't buy those things. You can't buy loyalty, for example. You can't buy love. I mean, you can buy someone to fake love. You can buy someone to fake loyalty. But at the end of the day, if you hoard things for yourself and you're always trying to keep up with the Joneses and chasing the next dollar, how many people do you end up trampling to get that? And of what benefit are you to your family or your community or your team or whatever it may be? And then ultimately when you do win the victory, if you win the victory and you celebrate alone or you celebrate with only those who are around you at the dinner table because they know this guy is our gravy train and we're going to ride this thing until it goes off the tracks, how can you trust them? How do you know that they're truly your friends when it seems like they always have their hand out asking for more? So Pressfield continues, we in our day know from history that this was not calculated gesture or grandstanding stunt on Alexander's part. It sprung from the most authentic passions of his heart. He truly cared nothing for material things. He loved his men and his heart was set on glory and the achievement of great things. This is Marcus Aurelius's point in the meditations. He comes back to this over and over and over again of how disappointed other people were with him as, an, as a Roman emperor because he cleaned out all the pomp and all the flotsam and jetsam of wealth and royalty from the throne room. And he didn't dress like an emperor. He didn't conduct himself like an emperor. He didn't hold himself above other people. He didn't play the game of emperor. He didn't play the role. He didn't play, you know, he didn't read the script. He didn't act his part. And people were disgusted by that. They were put off by that. They just couldn't understand what was wrong with him, that he preferred to live humbly and to dress humbly and to concern himself with things that really weren't that important, like good and beauty and questions of life, the universe, and everything. But for Marcus and Epictetus and Rufus and others who are Stoics, the whole purpose of life is to love your neighbor and love God. The whole purpose of life is the whole reason that God made you was to be a part of a community and to make the community better, to make the neighborhood better, to make your team better, your unit better. You were only put on this earth to serve others and others were only put on this earth to serve you. All the material things that we chase after that we think we can't live without, that we need, they actually prohibit and block you from enjoying true wealth and true happiness because true wealth and happiness, at least for the Stoics, 
can only come through abandoning material wants and needs and becoming in, essentially obsession with pleasure, obsession with satisfying your cravings for the Stoics is really about as morally evil as it gets before you really go off the deep end into wholesale murder and so forth. But that why do people steal? Why do people rape? Why do people murder? It's because they're not satisfied with what they have and therefore they go and they take selfishly without considering the other person or really caring about the other person. They go and they take or they demand. Why? Because I need this. Why? Because it satisfies my cravings. And unless my cravings are satisfied, I can never be happy. Well, for myself as an alcoholic, I can, I can tell you from experience that there's never enough alcohol in the world or enough opiates in the world for an addict. That's why we have a saying in recovery that one drink is too many and a hundred is not enough. But again, an alcoholic is just an exaggerated manifestation of human cravings. And we all crave those things that give us pleasure, that delight us. But yet in moderation, in, you know, with temperance, it's all right. Anything for the most part that is good is all right when it's done with temperance, when temperance is exercised. But if we do too much of it, if we eat too much sugar, if we drink too much alcohol, if we drive too fast, if we think too much about ourselves and our cravings, it becomes detrimental and it becomes a detriment to us because it becomes a detriment to those around us. And our well-being and our true wealth is only received from those around us whom we serve and who benefit from our service. So for Marcus then as an emperor, that's the purpose of the emperor is to serve and benefit his people. That the people aren't there to serve the emperor and his needs, but the emperor is there to serve the needs of the people. This used to be the purpose of representative government. Now I can argue as a student of political history and political science that there's never been a time in this country where our politicians were truly representatives of the people's will or the will of the people. But you have politicians and you have public people like Thomas Paine and others who they were primarily concerned with the populace and they were concerned with what is good for the community is good for the nation and what is good for the nation is good for not only the individual person, the citizen, but the authorities as well and the government officials. And then, of course, that went off the rails pretty quick. <laughs> and now we have what we have today. But this is why I'm not a political animal. I don't follow politics because one, I did for a long time. And my biological father taught political science and social studies and U.S. and world history and literature in high school uh, for a long time. And so I grew up learning about political science and politics and U.S. history from him and being given books to, to read and learn from. So while other kids were reading, you know, comic books and, and fantasy stories, I was reading political science books and economics books and U.S. history books. But I, I came back to fantasy and science fiction in high school. I came to my senses, so to speak. But that's why I look at politicians and I, it doesn't matter what the title is above the door, D or R or anything, any derivative thereof. They're in it for themselves and they prove this all the time when the camera's pointed at their face and they lie or they misrepresent the truth or they try and convince the people they are supposedly representing who voted them into office that what's good for me and what I want to do with your tax money, for example, is good for you and will benefit you. And when they're called to account for this, they equivocate and they dodge and they, they attempt to displace responsibility and blame the other guy for what's gone wrong. We see this all the time when people are selfless or selfish and they're only in it for themselves and they're only in it to make a buck and to basically benefit off of the hard work and the efforts of others. They don't care who they trample. They don't care who they hurt or destroy. They don't care even if they destroy their neighborhood or their community or even their nation because at the end of the day, all they care about is themselves and they're literally blind to the devastation that they are reaping for the people around them. Because like I said, when you're only interested in yourself and serving yourself and you're not selfless, it's like Narcissus staring at the pond and becoming obsessed with his own reflection. When people are selfish and they're primarily selfish and the majority of the time they're selfish, 
all they can see is their own reflection. And like the dog with the bone, they don't see that they're hurting themselves. And yet, when you truly love other people, then your heart is set on the glory and achievement of other people and helping other people achieve their goals and helping other people reach that golden ring or get that trophy or get that recognition, that raise, that promotion, that diploma, whatever it might be. But you also recognize that, again, that wealth that comes from that, that satisfaction that fills your heart, that peace of mind, that clarity and sobriety that comes with serving and helping others, you can't buy it. It can only be gotten through self-service and self-sacrifice, giving up on yourself. As the Bible says, I must decrease that he may increase. And so if we want to achieve great things, we have to start by helping others. If I want to be the best husband in the world, if I want my husband to think of me as the best husband in the world or my children to think of me as the best dad in the world, I have to start by not worrying about that. But instead ask, what can I do to be a good husband to you? What can I do to be a good father to you? What can I do to be a good teammate to you or a good neighbor or a good pastor or whatever it may be? It's not what can you do for me, but rather what can I do for you? And that's the dichotomy. Is that, is that a selfish question? Yes, it is. Because I know that by helping them, it helps me. If I benefit them, it benefits me. And so it is selfish, but it is selfishness directed toward the loss of self. So it's like I've said before, I call it being selfishly selfless. Because does it give me pleasure? Yes. Does it make me happy to help others? Yes. When I see one of my kids smile and laugh and I see the love in their eyes that they, when they look at me, does that make me feel good? A hundred percent. But do I do it for that reason alone or primarily for that reason? No. I do it because I love them and I want them to succeed and I want them to be strong mentally and emotionally and physically. I want them to succeed in their relationships. I don't want them to struggle with the same fears that I struggled with. And I don't want them to struggle the way that I struggled where I kind of started off life at negative 10 and had to work my way back to zero before I could even start living at 45. I want them to benefit from the life that they have been given. And I want them to receive it as gift. And I want them to understand and learn from their failures and mistakes. Learn from my wisdom. And if they do, that's fantastic. I love it. Praise God. And if they don't, I understand why, because I did the same thing when others gave me advice, and I still do. But again, the question always becomes, what have you learned from this? And how can I help teach you, or how can I help get you to think about that question, what have I learned from this, and how will it benefit me down the road so that I don't live with regrets, and I don't live with overwhelming anxiety about what's next, but rather I can stand steadfast and firm right here, right now, and be present tense for others and ask the question, what can I do to help you? Understanding again that being selfishly selfless, helping others benefits me in ways that are far beyond the reach of anything that I could buy or beg or steal for myself. So then to wrap up Pressfield here, another time Alexander's army was struggling through the mountains in the dead of winter. Ah, one old soldier came straggling into camp, so frozen from the blizzard that he could no longer see or hear. Troops around the fire cleared a seat for the veteran, prepared hot broth for him, and helped thaw him out. When the ancient soldier had recovered enough to comprehend his surroundings, he realized that the young warrior who had given him his seat by the fire was Alexander himself. At once, the veteran left to his feet apologizing for taking the king's place. No, my friend, said Alexander setting a hand on the man's shoulder and making him sit down again. For you are Alexander more even than I. And maybe that's a good place to wrap up of it for a long time. And in some places it still persists this ethic of hospitality that to welcome someone into your home is not just a matter of let me host you, but like literally, I think, um, uh, Marcus Luttrell talks about this in Lone Survivor, that when the Afghan elder took him into his house, he took not only him as an individual human being into his home, but he took him into his home in such a way that he took responsibility for Marcus's life. And therefore, when the Taliban came and demanded that the elder give Marcus to them, the entire village came together and said, no, it doesn't matter that he's an American. It doesn't matter that he's an enemy combatant to you. It doesn't matter who he is. 
all that matters is he is my guest. And if he is the, this elder's guest, then he is our guest. And therefore, we will protect him with our life. We will feed him. We will heal him. We will clothe him. We will house him. And when he is healthy and he walks away from this village, you do with him what you want. But as so long as he's in this village and he's under this man's roof, he's under our protection. And we will protect him even at the cost of our own life. That's the true ethic of hospitality. That's like I talked about in the previous two episodes about tribalism. That's tribalism when it's right. Because it's all about the other and serving the other and being selfless to the extent that when you take a person in your own home, hospitality, the ethic of hospitality dictates this person's life is now in my hands. And therefore, I must do everything necessary to protect this person's life, lest I bring shame upon my house and upon my village and my people. That the ethic of hospitality is the ultimate expression of selflessness. Because it's saying, you who are a stranger, you who are a friend, you who are a distant relative, come to visit, third cousin twice removed on my mom's side. By taking you into my home, you are a part of my home. It's the old Mexican expression, mi casa es su casa, my home is your home. And when done right, that's literally what it means. When I lived in Mexico and the doctor and his family took me into their home, as I talked about before, they gave me their name. So that even to this day when I go back, that's how I'm known. I'm known by their last name. I am Angulo. And that's just the way it is. Because if the doctor, who is much respected in his community, and the doctor's wife, my mother, who's much respected in the community, says, this is our son, it doesn't matter what the color of my skin is. It doesn't matter what language I speak. It doesn't matter my background or my personal history. All that matters is that this elder and his wife have said, this is our child. Then the village says, then he's our child too. And he will receive all of the benefits as if he were literally the child of your own womb. And therefore, when I'm there, other people that I've never met before bring me into their home and feed me. Other people that I've never met before just give me things for free and they give me gifts because to give me a gift or to give me food is to give the Angulos food. To honor me and respect me is to honor and respect the Angulos. So as Alexander himself says, you are Alexander more even than I. When I sit down at that table and they serve me, that's what they're saying. You are Angulo, even more than I am, more ever than I am. So then, unfortunately, with the, the, the primacy of, of subjectivism in, in the last 100 or 200 years, 250 years, and hyper-individuality, which is kind of a natural byproduct of one, human nature, and two, consumer-driven capitalism, we, we tend to lose hospitality. That's why you'll, you'll hear people complain about customer service and how it's gone completely down the tubes. That's a form of hospitality, customer services. And the fact that we no longer care necessarily as a culture about customer service, I just watched a video last night about a, an airline and how they you know, kept this, these people on an airplane for an hour and a half and then had them get off and then get back on for another hour and then get them off and then told them, well, another plane and you have to walk down here and this will take 10 to 15 minutes and then you'll get on board. Oh, you're not going to get on board. And then six hours later, you're at your hotel and then it's going to be the next day when you fly out and so forth and so on. Why do they do that? Because they don't care about you. They've got your money and they have no ethic of customer service. They have no ethic of hospitality. They, the, the, the CEO of the airline will never give up his seat for you. He's not going to say, for you are me more ever than I am. He's not going to say, you know what, for all of your trouble, for making you miss your flight home and not being able to be with your family tonight and screwing up the plans of all the people that had to pick you up and, and so forth and so on, I'm going to do all this for you. No, not, that's not going to happen. You're not getting a free plane ride. Because we've lost in our culture the ethic of hospitality. We've lost the ethic of selflessness almost completely. Does it survive in pockets? Absolutely. Will you find it in groups? Absolutely. And when you find it, just like finding a good friend, a true friend, cling to it selfishly, jealously, and yet at the same time, this is the dichotomy. Yes, cling to it selfishly because you realize how rare this is to find a group of people who are genuinely interested in encouraging and motivating and helping you improve and achieve your goals. The dichotomy is, 
you hold that in an open hand though, so that you can share it with others. Because you realize, you see, these people are going to keep giving into my hands these gifts of encouragement and motivation and humility and encouragement and so forth and so on. And therefore, I can afford to give this away to someone else because they're just going to keep giving it to me. And I'm going to keep giving it to them because this wealth that I've received from them, there's no bottom to it. It's unquenchable. It's like a, a, a natural spring and aquifer that never you know, um, runs out. That's what true wealth, and that's how you measure true wealth, in my opinion, is true wealth, it never runs out. You never have to worry about it breaking and, and having to buy another one, and you never have to worry about someone coming along and taking it away from you. Because true wealth, like courage, gratitude, morally, you know, moral good, and so forth, selflessness, those are things that they're always there, and they're always readily available to be given away, for free, by the way. And... They are free. They're always free. You can't buy them. And yet, that's, that's the struggle. That's the dichotomy, is to live with the open hand of faith, to live with the open hand of gratitude, to receive all things as gift, but also recognize that I got to stick, stick with these folks. I got to stay with this because this is the thing that I've been searching for. These are the people that I've been hoping and praying that I would find. And now that I've found them, it's better than I could have imagined and they're going to struggle with me and they're going to show up for me and I'm going to show up for them um, because I can't think of it being any other way now. So that's all I got for this evening. That's, again, The Warrior Ethos by Stephen Pressfield, page 42, uh, meditation 14 in, in this section on selflessness. I hope that you benefited from listening to this. I know your time and, and your attention is valuable and I hope that I uh, have given you uh, something of value. Uh, that you can use, that you can learn from, and and give away to others. If you like the podcast and you benefit from it, please uh, like and share with others. Uh, share the link with other people. Promote me on social media. I, I truly appreciate it, and I'd like to in you know encourage others to have the conversation um, after they get done listening. So, like I said, if, if it benefits you, awesome. That's fantastic. And if it doesn't, keep listening. Maybe it will. <laughs> or at the very least, I hope I've I've caused you to think. So I'll see you next week for a brand new episode. Peace.